The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, August 18th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Dateline Omaha. Actually, I don't want to read the headline. I'll read you, I'll read you the third paragraph. Omaha police officers were called to a house near 90th and Maple Street at 9.45 Tuesday to investigate an accidental overdose. This is potentially scary. They learned that a 53-year-old man had been unloading groceries and found some brownies in the backseat of his car that his adult children had used earlier in the day. The man ate four of the brownies. I can understand... I was going to say one or two. No, two. I really can understand two. That's the amount of brownies you eat. They're good, so you eat a second one. You got to stop at two. This Omaha man did not. He began freaking out. The wife called the police, called the children, panicked a little bit when her husband said that he was feeling anxiety. And here's the most important detail. He was crawling around the floor, randomly using profanities and calling the family cat a bitch. Omaha Police Department Officer Kenneth Randall confirmed to Eyewitness News, quote, he insulted his cat. The man declined to go to the hospital and went to bed instead. Here is the headline of the Omaha World Herald. Omaha dad finds pot brownies, eats four of them, says mean thing to cat. (laughs) The local ABC affiliate put this on their website And the hashtag was cats, and the visual was a cat standing next to four stacked up brownies. This is not primarily a cat story. They were overemphasizing the cat angle to this story. The cat angle, much like the brownies themselves, made it delicious. This isn't about cats. This is about the crazy things we do when we eat four brownies we find in the back of our car, left there by our adult children. We say mean things to a cat. I was heartened by the fact that both of the news organizations that I read covering this disclosed what the mean things were, that the cat was a bitch. Couple things, cat probably not insulted, and knowing cats, probably warranted. On the show today, I spiel about a presidential candidate who's saying wacky things, but it might not be the presidential candidate you think. But first, our nuclear stockpile. How secure is it? Dan Zak is here with, well, you know how these things go. He's not here with the answer. Don't worry. Totally secure. He wrote a book. That can't possibly be the conclusion. Here's Dan Zak. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? There was a time, a time expanding into decades, where the issue of nuclear weapons was foremost on Americans' minds. Campaigns were won and lost on nuclear policy. In 1980, Jimmy Carter, in his debate, only debate with Ronald Reagan, said, there are various elements of defense. One is to control nuclear weapons, which I hope we'll get to later on, because that is the most important single issue in this campaign. His opponent, Ronald Reagan, didn't denigrate the importance of nuclear weapons. He just thought they were important to have. Reagan's attitude pretty much won the day, won the election, and obtains, let me quote from the 2010 
nuclear posture review. As long as nuclear weapons exist, the United States will sustain safe, secure, and effective nuclear forces. Not too many people in the highest reaches of government disagree with that, but there are those who do, and Dan Zak wrote about a group of them. His book is Almighty, Courage, Resistance, and Existential Peril in the Nuclear Age. Dan Zak's a reporter for the Washington Post. Hey, Dan. Hello, Mike. So, as I read your book, it's about nuclear weapons, but it's through the prism of three unlikely activists who breached a nuclear weapons facility. Why don't you tell me about them and why you decided to tell the book in that way? These three activists, one of whom was at the time an 82-year-old Catholic nun, went to this facility in East Tennessee, just outside of Knoxville in the middle of the night, hiked over a wooded ridge and cut through four fences and got to the exterior of the building that holds all of our enriched uranium, part of the fuel of our nuclear weaponry. And they spray-painted biblical messages and sprinkled blood and used small sledgehammers to chip away at the foundation of the building to symbolically disarm it. And they were, you know, arrested and and thrown in jail and awaited trial. And I first learned about the break-in like a month after it happened. I mean, I didn't really make a ton of news. And it was not on my radar until a colleague pointed it out about a month after the fact. Right. And they're sort of like low-tech Edward Snowden's in that they certainly did violate the law. They didn't claim they didn't. They claimed it was an unjust law in their trial. And senators and congressmen of all stripes sometimes condemn their actions, but actually thank them for what they showed. Yeah, I mean, they were doing it because they thought that they were committing an act of crime prevention, that they were uh, obeying a higher law. Um, So they, you know, admitted to their actions, but they thought that they were not guilty. Of course, the government looks at them and says, well, you're guilty of trespassing, destruction of government property, and most seriously, intending to endanger the national defense. Uh, So obviously, the government saw it uh, as a felony. And so their guilty verdicts, what kind of time, if any, did they serve? They were convicted of of destruction of government property and intending to endanger the national defense. The latter charge uh, can carry up to 20 years in prison. They were sentenced to far less than that. Uh, Sister Megan, the Catholic nun, uh, got just short of three years on her sentence. And the two gentlemen who accompanied her and worked with her, Michael and Greg, got uh, around five to six years each. Um, They spent about two years in prison, all told. But they were released last May, May of 2015, when an appeals court overturned that most serious conviction and said this wasn't sabotage. They weren't intending to endanger the national defense. This was an act of protest. Criminal, yes, but they were not uh, trying to sabotage the United States. So it was symbolic and it certainly showed that there were some vulnerabilities, but just how vulnerable? I mean, no one was saying that, oh, while this was embarrassing, no one was saying that an 82-year-old nun or even a highly sophisticated person could have launched a nuclear weapon. Were they saying that? This action, despite being criminal, was peaceful. They weren't looking to break into an actual building. They were not looking to destroy anything significant or steal anything. That was not the point. And there were people who argued in the aftermath about, you know, what if they weren't pacifists? What if terrorists had gotten this far into this facility in East Tennessee? What could have happened then? And there are some people who say, well, they could have blown their way into this building, um, which has uh, concrete walls that are supposed to withstand the impact of a jet. 
threat, and they could have set off an improvised nuclear device using the material in this building. It could have killed tens of thousands of people. And of course, a lot of people say that scenario is so far-fetched. This building itself is so secure, if, even if the site is not. Um, you know, but what I come around to is, well, isn't it extremely far-fetched that an octogenarian nun could have gotten as far as she did? So it kind of raises some uncomfortable uh, what-if questions. Yeah, and it does raise the question, or at least the fact, that there are still, what, 5,000 nuclear warheads? It's at the lowest level, even though it's costing a lot more than it ever has. But, you know, the United States still has a lot of nuclear warheads. It doesn't seem at all to be on the front burner about what to do with these things. In fact, the answer does seem to be, well, we'll just keep them. And I quoted from the Nuclear yeah. Posture Review. It's good that we have yeah. them if other people have them. Yeah, the number of warheads that we have that the world has has come down significantly since the peak of the Cold War but we still have 7,000 of them, and Russia has about 7,000 of them, and 4,000 or so of them on our side are actually deployed. We still have nuclear warheads that are buried in the ground in Montana and North Dakota, and they're on the tips of missiles that are ready to launch. They're on submarines that are patrolling the Pacific and the Atlantic. Um, They're ready to be loaded on bombers, uh, both domestically and in Europe. These weapons are still all around us. And I understand America's less freaked out about the possibility of a nuclear war than from a time when there was a Soviet Union, which was a sworn enemy with explicit intentions of destroying us. But, you know, as as I know, you know, Russia is fine. It's now a de facto enemy with sneakier intentions that wouldn't mind destroying us. It's not exactly a perfect 180 from the threat that Russia or the Soviet Union back then represented. Yeah, and people argue the number of weapons that we have is is so outdated. It was it was it was Cold War era, and the fact that we have so many and so many that are on kind of a higher alert status is is ridiculous. And we are no longer staring down an enemy um, like we did uh, during the Cold War. Of course, Putin has um, kind of brought back an era of Cold War ethos. So, you know, there is this weird backsliding into some Cold War rhetoric right now because of Putin's recalcitrance. But someone would argue, why not just have enough nuclear warheads to end the world once? Why, you know, why do we still have 15,000 some nuclear warheads on the planet when it wouldn't take that much to kill everyone once. And the reason is because, you know, people consider these weapons to be political weapons. They have no practical use in warfare because they're so destructive, but they can be used as bargaining chips. And, you know, we're not going to keep reducing them unless Russia reduces them in concert. Right. But have you read anything in the last, I don't know, 30 years that indicated that nuclear weapons have gotten the United States anything or prevented any sort of attack or incursion on the world stage? I mean, I know that there was a time when we thought that and it might have even been true. But I've just even among, you know, the most warmongering factions among the think tanks, I can't recall anyone saying, but for nuclear weapons, this would have happened. Well, there is a significant school of thought that says that nuclear weapons, even up until today, have prevented World War III, which is an interesting paradox because you can't really prove a negative. We published in the Washington Post three years ago an op-ed whose headline was, Nuclear Weapons Are the U.S.'s Instruments of Peace. Uh, of course, there are many people who say that's, that's an illogical uh, argument. It has not stopped uh, horrible regional wars, civil wars, anything like that. Um, so that is the, the big debate is... is is do you believe that the possession of these weapons, you know, obviates world war because of the nature of the war that would they would entail? Or do you think that keeping them around will eventually result in 
miscalculation or accident or misunderstanding, and then we're really screwed. Yeah, I got that uh, op-ed right in front of me. It was by Robert Spaulding, a military fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations. Not, by the way, yeah. the most warmongering of think tanks. And as I read through it, there's no evidence. I mean, there's assertions, but there is no evidence. There are some statistics. Well, that's the thing. He says it's you on know, the, the cheap and, and the nuclear triad causes, uh, costs only $500 billion, which kind of seems like a lot. But what do I know? I've never made a billion dollars. But we could also point to all the wars that did happen. I, right. I you know, don't see any examples of uh, Sunni or Shia militias unwilling to attack the United States because of nuclear weapons. It seems like a worse argument now than it's ever been. You'd think so, because the foundation of, of, of the argument for continuing to possess the arsenal is its deterrence effect. But, you know, terrorists do not obey by those rules. Uh, survival is not preeminent. And so the, the laws or the, the logic of deterrence, if, if, if there is one, if you argue, it does not apply in a world where there's kind of this multipolar terrorist-fueled uh, conflict. What do you think of the New START treaty, the uh, Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, which Russia and the United States signed? And it was supposed to be to make our stockpiles smaller but more secure. Do you buy that? Well, I mean, I think the main purpose or what ended up being the main achievement of the New START treaty was that it preserved and prolonged uh, and this is getting a little wonky, but verification procedures, which allows us to go to Russia and and check in on their facilities and allows them to come to ours and say, okay, we're all complying, we're all being transparent, everything's okay. I mean, it's the, the treaty is not reducing numbers drastically in terms of the numbers of warheads or anything like that. Um, so it really was, um, you know, it was viewed as an achievement, but it's, I think it was a modest achievement whose, whose primary use is, is kind of making sure that we can still peek in on each other. Of course, in order to get this treaty ratified in the Senate, the White House essentially had to promise that we were going to modernize our arsenal, which right now it's estimated that we're going to spend $1 trillion over the next 30 years to modernize and overhaul the weapons that we do have, which will make them operational um, you know, up until the 2080s. So you could say that despite you know, in exchange for this treaty being ratified, we have essentially recommitted to uh, nuclear weapons for for another couple generations. Well, what's better? I mean, okay, let's say that the uh, idea of totally denuclearization is off the table. So what's better to have stockpiles of unmodern weapons or to modernize? There's the rub, right? I mean, if I'm we're asking not you, get rid of Dan. Now, I'm asking you, yeah. not the 82 yeah. year old nun. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. I, if we're going to have them, yeah, they got to be secure. There's buildings in this site that the uh, nun broke into that need to be updated because they're falling apart because they are from the Manhattan Project. What about countries other than the United States and Russia that have nuclear weapons? How important a part is that in terms of denuclearizing the world? Well, I think you, you talk to nuclear experts, uh, nuclear policy experts in Washington and ask them, what are you most concerned about? And over the course of reporting and writing this book, that concern has always been India and Pakistan. They haven't had a great relationship, and they both are armed with nuclear weapons. And both are suspected of not securing them, um, both the weapons and the material as appropriately as they should. Of course, this year, we've seen more about North Korea, which is the only country to have tested nuclear weapons in the 21st century. And of course, there is concern with 
with Putin rattling the nuclear saber for the first time in uh, a generation or two. There's concern about China's transparency with their nuclear weapons. It's kind of a fragile dance here, and, and, and plenty of countries will point at the U.S. and say, well, you're not getting rid of yours fast enough, so you can't hold it over us, what we're doing, if you have 7,000 of these things when you committed by treaty in 1968 to to essentially get rid of them. You can see those criticisms come to light when, when the Iran deal was being negotiated. There were factions in Iran saying, you know, who are you to tell us we can't have it if you yourself have it and believe it's integral to your security? And I think in 2013, Obama said he'd like to cut the nuclear arsenal to a thousand weapons, but he's not going to do it unilaterally. Putin has to match him. If we look at our two presidential candidates, neither of them are as dovish as Obama is. Not that Obama is a total dove, but not as dovish. So what do you think the prospects are for nuclear reduction anytime within the next 10 years? Oh, I think they're they're bleak. Military advisors have have we said that we can reduce our deployed stockpile by one third and still meet our military objectives. But Russia's got to do the same. Um, Putin does not seem to be a willing partner then. So it kind of depends on who's running Russia. As far as who's running the U.S., there's some murmurings right now that in the, his final months in office, the president will make some presidential decisions that don't require the, the authorization of Congress or the, uh, anything like that, committing to a non-first-use policy. Right now, on the table, we, we will use nuclear their weapons first. If we can detect an incoming attack, we don't wait to respond. And a president can choose to um, to change that. So he might do that in the time remaining. As far as Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, Clinton, as far back as um, her first presidential run, was saying she would not rule out nuclear weapons use in terms of combating terrorism. Donald Trump, this presidential cycle, he said he would be the last to use nuclear weapons. But then he also said he maybe Japan and South Korea should get their own arsenals, which is anathema to the entire nuclear establishment. I mean, that is proliferation. So it kind of depends on who's in charge of the U.S. next and who follows Putin. Dan Zak is the author of Almighty, Courage, Resistance, and Existential Peril in the Nuclear Age. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. You know, I am just sick of presidential candidates who call Hillary Clinton a criminal, who say Hillary Clinton should have been jailed, even though the prosecutor clearly laid out the facts of the case, why mismanagement without intent would never result in indictment by any prosecutor. Doesn't matter. Ignore that, even though you're running for president. And and candidates who say they believe in vaccines, but still give credence to quote unquote serious concerns, thereby normalizing the anti-vaxxer sentiment. And I'm especially sick of candidates who have nonsensical economic policies that I suspect they might not even understand. Wait, Donald who? No, I'm talking about Dr. Jill Stein. All the reasons you're told to vote for the lesser evil because you didn't want the expanding wars. You didn't want the meltdown of the climate or the Wall Street bailouts or the deportation of immigrants. That's exactly what we've gotten by allowing ourselves to be silent. So in my view, uh, we need to reject the lesser evil and fight for the greater good. Stein did a town hall meeting for over an hour on CNN last night. Good for CNN and good questions from moderator Andrew Cuomo. Also from the audience, one member of the military got Jill Stein to say this. ISIS is not about to launch a major attack against our country. Glad she knows that. 
Stein's running mate is Ajamu Baraka. As much as I like the idea that on one presidential ticket to another, we'll go from Barack Obama to an Ajamu Baraka, and why not uh, buy Joden while we're at it? Baraka shared Stein's rhetoric on what has become the Greens' signature issue, debt forgiveness. Here is Jill Stein. We found a way to um, bail out Wall Street. And here is Baraka. And I think we need to make a corrective. Quantitative easing was the creation of money. This totally misunderstands what quantitative easing is. It isn't really just printing money. It's buying bonds, increasing the size of a central bank's reserves. It could have the effect of what would happen had you actually printed money, which is to say inflation. It did not have the effect of inflation. Why not? Well, for one, quantitative easing was changing the balance sheet structure of banks and the central bank without actually literally injecting new money into the economy. But a big reason is that quantitative easing was a tactic, a risky tactic, but one that made sense because of who the recipient was. Banks. Banks are excellent financial risks. Banks, given an improved balance sheet, can start lending money again and the entire economy benefits. That's what happens. It's a tactic that works with one recipient because of the nature of that recipient. With banks, quantitative easing makes sense. With recent college graduates, it does not make sense. But Jill Stein doesn't think that quantitative easing is smart because you're talking about the liquidity of banks. She thinks it's unfair because banks have it easy. It was easy for the banks to repay the loans because they're an extremely advantaged and privileged uh, group. They are advantaged. And that advantage was the American economy's advantage. Jill Stein would really make a terrible loan officer. Do we really want to give Mr. Buffett this money? He's almost certain to pay it back. Isn't that kind of unfair? But Jill Stein is not just thinking about paying the debt back. She wants to wipe out all the debt. So why not just say, we're going to take all that debt, $1.25 trillion, and we'll add it to the deficit, or we won't add it to the deficit. We'll raise taxes, and our priorities will be to pay off the college debt instead of doing some other things with the money. I'll tell you why she doesn't say that, because it's politically unpalatable. Maybe she doesn't say that because this quantitative easing idea, I put in quotes, seems maybe to some like a solution without downsides. Because the phrase quantitative easing sounds weird and technical and quasi-magical and unsympathetic figures, banks once benefited from it. So you can make a parallelism and ask, shouldn't sympathetic figures benefit from this magic too? We would owe that money to ourselves, but as a nation, we can decide to spend money on ourselves, and in particular, we can decide to spend money on our younger generation who currently does not have a future. Our debt-holding younger generation does actually have a future, by the way. That's another area where Jill Stein echoes Donald Trump that there is no future, that there is no optimism. 90% of student debt will be paid back. Many of the people holding student debt are now or will soon be quite well off. They're not like preschool kids in the inner city. They're not like other truly needy individuals in our society. And wiping out college debt would create a huge moral hazard for the future. Anyone who has to make that tough choice, say, between paying for college and buying a Chevy, 
And if that person decided, you know what, I'm not going to buy the car. I'll suck it up and take the bus until I get my degree. Well, now that person's going to say, screw it. I'm getting a new Trans Am. Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, they both have a plan for free college or some version of free college. It's not really a well-worked-out plan, yet those plans are much more sensible than just forgiving college debt. If that's what we decide, and if we do decide to forgive college debt, let's not do it by the magical thing of quantitative easing. It's like saying my dad had a heart attack. They decided to use a defibrillator on him. My dog has mange. Let's get out the defibrillator. Quantitative easing as a cure for student debt is almost disqualifyingly asinine. Stein might as well have promised, we're going to relieve your student debt and the Mexicans are going to pay for it. That's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson got a hold of some bad clams and heckled orangutans down at the zoo. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, mistook peyote for Pez and directed hurtful comments at a pygmy goat for somehow being less than. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, drank a gallon of grape juice that had become fermented and wound up slut-shaming mares at the breeding shed. The gist, well, it turns out the jello shots weren't made of pure jello. And therefore, we were chastised by a flounder who reminded us our eyes are up here. Yeah, both of them, right next to each other. Umpuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.